Relations. When it comes to labor law and the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, the firm's Labor Relations Practice Group, co-chair Steve Bernstein, sums up the 2010s this way. We've seen two different NLRBs over the past decade. The first seven or so years could not have been more different than the last three. The pendulum swings were due, of course, to the results of the 2016 election. The Obama-era NLRB had a mission to reverse not just several decisions from the Bush administration, such as the Purple Communications case, that allowed workers to use their employers' electronic systems for organizing purposes during non-working time, and the Banner Estrella Medical Center case that invalidated the practice of advising employees to maintain confidentiality over internal investigation matters, but also a few that were decades old and well-established such as the Piedmont Gardens case that allowed employees to refrain from disclosing witness statements in response to union information requests. The early part of the decade also saw the NLRB blaze new trails when it issued Hispanics United of Buffalo, the first of many crucial decisions extending concerted activity protection to social media activity. Bernstein notes that the later years of the Obama-era NLRB were not nearly as dramatic, perhaps because the board felt chastised by several Supreme Court decisions such as the 2014's Noel Canning case, where the court invalidated scores of board decisions due to improper use of recess appointment power. But the drama returned in December 2017 when the newly constructed Trump board issued a raft of decisions overturning recent precedent, including PCC Structurals, Inc., overturning a standard that had made it easier for unions to organize employee microunits, and the Boeing Co., implementing a more balanced analysis for evaluating workplace policies. The board had continued to level the playing field with significant decisions, such as 2019's Super Shuttle DFW decision expanding the standard for independent contractor status and 2019's UPMC case, abolishing the public space exception that had allowed third-party access to employer property for protest purposes even in the presence of alternative means. It also has proposed rules clarifying the joint employer standard and various aspects of the representation process. A final rule revamping Obama-era quickie elections will soon be in effect. So what does the future hold? The NLRB should remain very energetic throughout 2020 in anticipation of the elections, Bernstein says. I would expect the board to continue down the path of creating more certainty for employers that have been clamoring for labor relations clarity for purpose of engaging in strategic planning. Now that we have a Republican majority firmly established at the board, unencumbered by red tape and procedural roadblocks, the sky's the limit. Wage and hour. Perhaps no area of workplace law experienced a more significant transformation over the past decade than wage and hour law. Across the country, numerous state wage and hour laws have been enacted or amended over the past 10 years to greatly expand employee rights and protections says Kathy Caminiti, co-chair of the firm's Wage and Hour Practice Group. Not many people in 2010 would have predicted where we've ended up today or where we're likely headed tomorrow. First and foremost, Caminiti points to substantial increases in the state and local minimum wage, which are now commonplace in many states and cities throughout the country. In 2010, only a handful of states had minimum wage requirement above the federal rate of $7.25. Today, thanks in part to the fight for the $15 movement that really kicked into gear in 2015, a majority of states have increased minimum wage rates, she says. Starting in 2020, in fact, many states and local jurisdictions will see a minimum wage over $10 per hour. 
Similarly, some states and cities have substantially increased the salary threshold for exempt employees during the last decade. Caminiti notes that the salary threshold for managers in some cities is almost $60,000 compared to the federal requirement of $23,660. And of course, one of the biggest wage and hour stories over the past decade has been the on-again, off-again overtime rule, which will kick in on January 1st, 2020 after years of litigation and regulatory revisions to raise the federal minimum salary threshold over $35,000. Over the past decade, employers have also been forced to grapple with an increasingly complex rubric of wage and hour laws with costly ramifications for noncompliance. In addition to minimum wage and overtime laws, many jurisdictions have enacted their own meal and rest break laws, daily overtime requirements, on-call obligations, and call-in pay laws. Taken together, Caminiti says compliance is harder than ever, while the penalties for noncompliance are harsher than ever. Many states, especially the more progressive ones like California, New York, and New Jersey, now have stringent laws aimed at punishing violations of wage and hour laws, says Caminiti. And they include severe remedies, such as double or triple damages, lengthy statutes of limitation up to six years, criminal penalties, and stringent anti-retaliation rules. Finally, the 2010 saw a marked proliferation of class and collective actions claiming violations of wage and hour laws. High-stakes lawsuits have unfortunately become commonplace, says Caminiti, and the number of wage and hour lawsuits filed on a yearly basis has done nothing but increase during the last 10 years. Claims alleging violations of state and local laws have substantially increased both the volume and financial exposure that the average company faces, and I don't see this changing in the 2020s. Workplace Safety when I think about the two biggest developments at the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in the past decade, says Travis Vance, co-chair of the firm's Workplace Safety and Catastrophe Management Practice Group, I think of the increased penalties for violations and the referral rules requiring immediate notification of severe workplace injuries. His co-chair, Todd Logsdon, chimes in, and when I think about the two biggest general developments in the field of workplace safety in the 2010s, I immediately think about workplace violence and the impact of drugs in the workplace. Starting at OSHA, Vance recalls that 2016 saw the first increase in penalties for safety violations since 1990. The maximum penalties increased by 78%, with the top penalty for willful or repeated violations increasing from $70,000 to nearly $125,000. The massive increases have led employers to change their calculus about whether to contest violation findings, he says, since there is so much more at stake now. Meanwhile, Vance says, OSHA changed forever on January 1, 2015, when it introduced new referral rules. They require employers to contact OSHA within 24 hours, following any incident leading to inpatient hospitalization, amputation, or loss of an eye. Employers must be especially diligent in this new era when it comes to understanding and complying with these obligations. I'm not sure we could have foreseen at the beginning of this decade the amount of attention we've had to spend fielding questions and handling issues relating to drugs in the workplace, says Logsdon, describing another trend that has taken on added significance in the 2010s. He cites to both the proliferation of state cannabis laws that now permit workers across the country to legally ingest THC-laden products, leading to employer confusion regarding safety obligations, and the explosion of the opioid epidemic. 
Employers now have to reconsider every aspect of their drug and alcohol policies to address the problem, he says, including their testing regimens, their counseling services, and their educational offerings to workers. And of course, workplace violence has been a scourge in American workplaces throughout the past decade. Although there still isn't a federal regulation on violence, there seems to be gathering steam for some action from OSHA, says Logsdon. He points to a movement in Congress to require healthcare facilities to address workplace violence, which may become law in the next few years. And he believes this could spread further in the 2020s. No one would be surprised if OSHA made small changes to their rules in the next decade that would have a dramatic and wide-scale impact in this area, he says. Finally, one other change from the past decade might be worth keeping an eye on in the next 10 years. Although OSHA issued fairly stringent anti-retaliation rules in 2016 that, on paper, restrict an employer's ability to mandate post-accident drug screening, says Vance, we haven't seen aggressive enforcement of this rule from the Trump-era OSHA. All that could change depending on the next occupant of the White House, he says, which means you'll need to continue to closely monitor developments at OSHA into the next decade. Joint employment. Another area of the law that saw a drastic swing of the pendulum in the last decade was in the joint employment field. The transition at the White House marked a definitive change in the way the joint employment question is viewed at the federal level, says John Polson, a member of the firm's management committee and chair of the Staffing and Contingent Workers Practice Group. But we're still in the midst of the transition, which should see rapid developments in the coming months. The most significant joint employment event in the past decade, according to Polson, was 2015's Browning-Ferris decision, issued by the Obama-era NLRB. For the previous 30 years, the NLRB had held that two companies would only be considered joint employers if they shared or co-determined those matters governing the essential terms and conditions of employment. But once Browning-Ferris became law, says Polson, joint employment would exist even where one company simply has the right to exert indirect or potential control over the terms and conditions of another company's employees. It was an absolute game-changer. Other federal agencies took similar stances in the 2010s, as the Obama administration aimed to expand joint employer status to provide broader protections for employees it believed were subject to workplace exploitation. But the tide started turning once the Trump administration installed leaders at the major federal labor and employment agencies. In short order, they started undoing the prior administration's handiwork, says Polson. In late 2017, the NLRB overruled Browning-Ferris and reaffirmed the long-standing joint employment test, only to scrap that decision several months later due to conflict of interest allegations against one of the board members. While the board has not yet issued another decision to once again topple Browning-Ferris, it has issued proposed regulations that would fundamentally alter the joint employment standard and make it more difficult for businesses to be held legally responsible for alleged labor and employment law violations by staffing companies, franchisees, and other related organizations. Meanwhile, two other federal agencies have started down the path of clarifying the joint employment standard so that fewer businesses are caught up in workplace claims, says Polson. He points to the 2019 proposal from the U.S. Department of Labor that would create a new standard for wage and hour liability and a recent announcement from the EEOC letting us know that we can expect a new joint employment rule for civil rights claims in early 2020. The clock is ticking before the 2020 election, says Polson and we're sure to see dramatic developments in the coming months. In fact, I could see a scenario where the joint employment pendulum swings back even further than ever before, 
and we're left with very narrow definitions of joint employer status at every relevant federal agency. 